that's about, we got 10 hours. 10 hours is about how much breathable air time the U.S. Coast Guard estimates is left for the five men aboard the missing submersible, which is named the Titan. It began its descent to the wreckage of the Titanic on Sunday morning. The clock is ticking rapidly as the Coast Guard coordinates a, quote, incredibly complex search and rescue operation to find them in an area that's twice the size of Connecticut and two and a half miles below sea level. Now, multiple countries and government agencies are involved with the effort, including the Canadian Coast Guard, a Bahamian research vessel, a French research vessel, a U.S. Navy, the U.S. Navy and the Air National Guard. Remote operated vessels are also being deployed in the search and more ships are expected to arrive in the next 24 hours. And that's where things stand right now. Now, as you can see them moving on this tracking map, as many as 11 ships were spotted today heading toward the the location of the Titanic wreckage. It's in a remote part of the North Atlantic Ocean. After a Canadian surveillance plane detected noises underwater for a second straight day. Now, the noises sparked optimism, optimism that the submersible's passengers could be found alive. One search and rescue expert told the AP that if those noises are indeed coming from the Titan, quote, it sends a message that you're probably using military techniques to find me. And this is how I'm saying it. The Coast Guard says it's unclear whether the sounds are from the missing craft. ROV operations were relocated in an attempt to explore the origin of the noises. Although the ROV searches have yielded negative results, they continue. What was supposed to be a two-hour descent on Sunday to see the wreckage of the Titanic has now turned into a four-day ordeal for the men trapped inside a very cramped 21-foot vessel. The Titan was one hour and 45 minutes into the dive when it lost contact with its support ship on the surface. However, this isn't the first time something like this has happened for the Ocean Gate, which is the company that owns the Titan and hosts several different diving explorations. A former passenger who's completed four dives with the company tells ABC News that his submersible lost contact with its host ship on all four of his dives, including on a trip to the Titanic. Now, for years, there were multiple warnings that things could go wrong. The New York Times reports that as far back as 2018, OceanGate's director of marine operations wrote a report saying that the Titan needed more testing to meet industry standards. He warned of, quote, the potential dangers to passengers of the Titan as the submersible reached extreme depths, end quote. Two months later, more than three dozen industry leaders, deep sea explorers and oceanographers issued a similar warning. They told the CEO Stockton Rush in a letter that the company's, quote, experimental approach and decision to operate the Titan without a third without third party testing could lead to a catastrophic outcome in its Titanic mission. Now, that, quote, experimental approach, end quote, that the experts warned about was laid out clearly in a waiver that people signed before boarding the Titan. According to a CBS reporter who took a trip on the vessel last year, the waiver described the Titan as, quote, an experimental submersible vessel that has not been approved or certified by any regulatory body which could result in physical injury, emotional trauma or death, end quote. Even Stockton Rush, the CEO of the company who is currently on board the Titan as its pilot, 
expressed some concerns about the possibility of diving to the Titanic wreckage and not making it back to the surface in an interview last year. But he later said, quote, at some point, you're going to take some risk, and it really is a risk-reward situation. I think I can do this just as safely by breaking the rules, end quote. Now, for those who are comfortable with taking on that level of risk, it might be worth a descent into the depths of the ocean to experience something that few people have ever had the chance to see up close. And few may, people may ever have the chance. And one of those people is Aaron Newman, who was a passenger aboard the Titan in 2021. He shot these photos and videos on a visit to see what remains of the Titanic nearly 13,000 feet below sea level. Joining us now is Aaron Newman. He's the man who took the videos in 2021 while aboard the now mis missing OceanGate submersible, the Titan. Aaron is an investor in OceanGate. Mr. Newman, thank you for taking the time to talk with us this evening. I, I, I got to ask you how you're feeling right now. Um, this got to be tough knowing that you were on that uh, and, and that there are people who are on the Titan right now. What have you been going through? Well, I mean, certainly three of those people that are on there are people that I knew and, 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 and were friends with. So it's certainly uh, a, a challenging time to, to think about what they could be going through or have gone through. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the, you know, while, while there's a lot that you said that, uh, you know, is, is maybe perhaps taken out of context, when I went through it, it was a very, very safe, uh, the safety was priority number one. Uh, there was a lot of effort gone into engineering and training us to make sure that it's as safe as possible. I mean, these type of adventures are, are you know, pushing the limits of, of where humanity goes. So there is risk involved. Um, but I, I don't know whether I believe the context that you put all that uh, safety questions in place. Well, talk to me about that, because I, I, I think I've used the terms risk, preparation, risk reward. Um, what, what's the issue that you've got with it? Well, well, understand first. For instance, putting out there about the uh, uh, the the uh, the lawsuit that was actually pertaining to an entirely that was a prototype of this ship, not the current ship. So um, it's probably not genuine to to say that that has anything to do with the current Titan uh, uh, submersible. Um, do you? Take the view that this is a risk reward question as the CEO who's who's on who's piloting that ship says that, you know, that it's possibly more risky than walking down the street or getting on an airplane. But that's that's yeah, a decision absolutely. that people make. Yeah. And these and these are people, for instance, the people that are on this craft, you know, people like Hamish are people that have. They, they live on the edge, right? I mean, Hamish has been to space, been to the bottom of the ocean. For him, this was a, 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 a probably not even one of his more daring adventures. So, um, you know, these are actually some really good people who all would have been in any scenario very calm. These are the type of people you'd want um, and, and, and would, be, would be able to handle any kind of scenario you threw at them. So that's perhaps why we're optimistic and, and happy to he be hearing something better down there, whether it is something else or whether it's them, this is the type of thing that a really experienced set of people like PH, Stockton, Hamish, these people would be would be pulling together and doing this kind of thing to to keep to keep a, a search going and to give as much evidence and, and clues as possible. So again, risk and mitigation of risk are just important things for explorers. Um, is, what's the mitigation 
of risk that takes place in a case like this. If this this uh, submersible has lost contact with its surface boat, I don't know if that's a serious thing or not, uh, but it, it, there is a letter that, that indicates that that has happened in the past. What's the risk mitigation that would normally occur? What would the company be saying, hey, if we lose contact with this thing, what's supposed to happen? Yeah, I mean... Typically, if you lost contact, you'd, you'd come back up. But, you know, sometimes you lose contact for a couple of hours or, or a half an hour because of, for instance, you're going through a thermocline, right? This right. is technology that's very, uh, it, it's, it's not, you know, perfect technology. So you might go through an area, you know, the same way when I dove down to the Marianas Trench, there were times through the trip that you would lose communication. Uh, because underwater, you know, and, and that's just why, well, why GPS doesn't work there down mm-hmm. there the same way. So communication can go in and out. Now, if it goes out for long, extended periods of time, there are protocols that you do, do need to follow and such. So, you know, I don't so you're believe that, that they, they would they, just shut down communications and go on. Got it. So you're saying that the, the loss of communication, uh, even though it's reported, and we, I, I, just to be clear, I wasn't talking about a lawsuit. I'm talking about sort of criticism that's come from um, from industry experts who've said that, it's not ready for prime time. This is a conversation we have about rocket ships all the time, rocket ships that carry passengers. There are people who go on these things like you who are prepared to say may not be ready for everybody just yet, but it's ready for some people uh, who deem themselves explorers or, you know, early adopters. Um, right. L- let's talk a little bit about the space and, and what's going on. Did you, when you were down there, did those things go through your mind or did you sign the waiver thinking there's risk to everything? Um, did you worry about what would happen if you lost contact and what is that space like? Well, I mean, for instance, let me give you an example. Probably the most important system from safety perspective on this sh- on this craft is the dr- is the weight system, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea is, you know, when you when you go down, you're negatively buoyant, you're dropping. When you get to the bottom, you adjust yourself, and then when you're ready to go back up, you drop these lead weights at the bottom of the of the craft, and you you gain positive buoyancy, and you come back to the surface. That system right there is the key to safety, right? So. Uh, it's designed with three different mechanisms to make sure that you have fail safe. So you rock the boat, you rock the craft to knock them off, or you have a hydraulic lever, which is independent of the electrical system. And then finally, you have a necklace that dissolves after 24 hours. So those are the side types of redundancies that are built in to, as you said, mitigate risk. Right. So it's designed to, to come back up to the top um, as long as, you know, something catastrophic doesn't happen. So um, but but we don't know what's going on. That's the problem. Right. This is all a lot of speculation and second guessing and armchair quarterbacking when really the focus right now is how do we get these? How do we locate we can whoever we can right now? And 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 if there's any possible chance, make it happen. What uh, what sort of resources are there on board? Let's assume the best uh, that they're they're down there and and they're going to be found sometime soon. What what have they got? In in the in the in the cra- in the submarine yeah. itself or yeah. on on the ship, right? In so, the submarine I itself. I mean, they they don't. Yeah, I mean, oxygen is the important stuff. Obviously, you know, after four days, water becomes problematic. Food is probably not going to be particularly problematic. We could all, I could go a couple days without food uh, standing on my head. But, uh, you know, they, they take down lunch. They take down water with them. Um, so obviously, this is a crew that's going to be very intelligent and know they're going to conserve their resources and make them last. They knew well that they had four days of, of oxygen, although you don't 
know what that really means, right? That th these are estimates uh, and 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 just guidelines, right? And you know, you're going to have CO2 buildup along the way, and who knows how that's going to affect different people at different points. So they they have provisions, and for them, they're going to be cold down there too, right? I mean, the temperature down outside uh, at the bottom would be 28, 29 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, and they have layers, but. Uh, they definitely are going to be in the dark and they're going to be layered up and they'd probably be huddled together to try to maintain warmth. And so, you know, but this is a crew that would be smart enough to know how to do that kind of thing. You know, you look at a, a PH, uh, he is the, he's been in submarines for 60 years. So nobody else has the level of experience that this guy does. So if there's any way they can manage, this is a team that can do it. Let's keep our uh, hopes alive for them. Thanks for being with us, Aaron. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to Thank talk you. to us. You're Aaron welcome. Newman. I want to talk to Brian Clark. He's a senior fellow and director at the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at Hudson Institute. He's also a former Navy submariner and an expert in naval operations. Mr. Clark, thank you for being with us. I appreciate your time. Can you tell us a bit about what this type of search looks like, uh, whether they can determine sort of where the last known location was of the submersible, and is, is that likely where we, we start the search? Uh, absolutely, Ali. You'd start with uh, the last place that they knew the submarine was, and it looks like because they maintain communications with the ship, that's how they track the location of the submersible as well as guide it as it goes towards the wreckage. Um, so you'd start there and then begin to search out. Now, in this case, uh, they'd be using passive sonar to try to identify sounds coming from the submersible. You know, and as we know, uh, there's been some sounds that might be coming from it. Uh, then you would uh, use multiple sensors uh, that you put in the water, sauna buoys, you know, that drop sonar systems into the into the water to geolocate it. So you get multiple lines of bearing and then you identify the specific location where you think the sound is coming from. And then you'd focus your search on that area, which is evidently what they've done. Um, and then you begin to search that area with active sonar, which is what the remotely operated vehicles are doing now. The, the, the sounds. There was a moment today when we thought uh, they'd identified sounds. They seemed to be at regular intervals that suggested that they wouldn't be random or, or even animals. Um, then the, the, the Navy and the Coast Guard sort of pulled that back a little bit to say, we don't really know that these are sounds coming from humans. Right. What do you make of that? The idea that there are ships, you know, for those of us who don't understand this, the idea that a, right. an airplane can determine sounds from, you know, uh, two and a half miles under the sea and then try and determine what those sounds are. What do you make of the, the news we have? Well, it's a, when you listen to uh, sonar uh, information coming in, uh, it can sometimes, because it's digitized, it can sometimes be difficult, difficult to interpret exactly what the source of the sound is, but you usually can determine whether it's mechanical uh, or if it's organic, right? So you can tell it's probably shrimp or uh, fish, uh, or you can tell it's something mechanical, some metal noise. Um, and then it's hard to go beyond that really to determine, is this man-made or is this just some wreckage you know, that's been disturbed under the water? And that's probably why they're being careful about describing the, the sound in any more detail than they have already. Uh, but it definitely suggests that there's something mechanical that's coming from something man-made. It may not be a person doing it, but it could certainly be an object doing it. Uh, what happens when they locate this thing? Because it's deeper in theory. We don't know where it is, but in theory, it's deeper than we can send right. divers. So what do you do? What do you right. do? You, how do you how do you how do you how do you help people who, who might be in that? Vessel? So you 
so once you've located it, you would use the, the ROVs, you know, that we've got out there with active sonar to precisely locate where it is. Uh, those ROVs would tell the operator back on the surface exactly where they are. And then we'd be able to uh, begin a salvage or a re rescue operation using a uh, crane type apparatus. The Navy has one of these. They've flown it to, uh, uh, to Canada. It's getting ready to get loaded onto a ship and moved out to the, the crash, the potential crash site. Um, so they can use that crane to pull the uh, the vehicle up out of the water the same way we pull uh, an F-18 fighter that falls into the ocean and drops to the bottom. So you can definitely pull it out with this crane, uh, but you got to locate it pretty precisely first. One of the things that we we are talking about is the amount of oxygen that is in that right. uh, vessel. How are those estimates made and how do we understand? Because there's a range, obviously, of how long that they can survive uh, underwater. Yeah, so you 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 have some standard uh, you know factors that you use based on people, uh, how much oxygen they use, and more importantly, how much carbon dioxide they generate, because that's normally what is the problem. Is you uh, tend to suffocate due to carbon dioxide poisoning rather than just running out of oxygen. So you do those numbers, and with you know five people in the in the craft and the amount of uh, space that's there, and then they do have some supplemental oxygen. Uh, if you add all that up, you can come up with an estimate of how long you think it would normally be. Now, if they're careful, you know, and as we just heard, these are very experienced operators. Uh, they could be taking some action to try to maximize the duration that their oxygen will last or minimize their use of oxygen uh, and even try to absorb some of the carbon dioxide that's being produced. So they could be uh, you know, getting creative and trying to maximize the amount of time they can operate um, be beyond that four-day window. Brian, thanks for helping us understand this. We really appreciate that. Brian Clark, uh, thanks for your time and expertise. All right, we should note that while this race against the clock to save five people trapped thousands of feet below water has been dominating news coverage for the past couple of days, there's another story about another vessel lost at sea last week. Hundreds of migrants from countries including Syria, Pakistan, and Afghanistan were on a fishing boat which sank last Wednesday while en route from Libya to Italy. About 100 people were rescued, more than 300 drowned. Now, there's a clear difference between both the news coverage and the rescue resources given to that fishing boat and the missing submersible in the North Atlantic. There are lots of people at sea at any given time, whether for adventure or for survival and self-preservation. At any moment, some of them, whatever their station in life or their intention when they set out, could need the world's urgent attention. And in moments like this, as we do and should do, we should be doing all we can to save those who are on the Titan. But it is also during moments like this where we should ask ourselves how we as a society marshal and deploy our resources and our attention to all who might need them when the time comes. We've got a lot more to get to tonight, including a reporter that raises new ethics question, a report that raises new ethics questions about a Supreme Court justice's ties to a billionaire. And this time, it's not about Justice Clarence Thomas. Plus, why Democrats in the House erupted in shouts of shame earlier tonight. Here's a hint. It was about what Republicans did to the Congressman Adam Schiff, who will join us live next. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Was there anyone you wanted to indict that you were prohibited from indicting by Attorney General Garland? No. So if you wanted to, you could have indicted Hillary Clinton, but you never asked. Is that right? If I had the evidence, um, yeah, he could have, for sure. You only brought two cases to trial, correct? Correct. And you lost all the cases you brought to trial, correct? Correct. Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was convicted, correct? That's correct. Not Trump's former foreign policy advisor to the campaign, George Papadopoulos, was convicted, correct? That's correct. Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, was convicted, correct? That's correct. Trump's longtime advisor, Roger Stone, was convicted, correct? Correct. All right. That was the special counsel, John Durham, testifying on Capitol Hill today. John Durham was, at one point, the man whom Republicans had hoped would expose some kind of nefarious plot within the Justice Department to attack Donald Trump. Republicans had hoped Durham would prove that the Robert Mueller investigation into Russian interference in uh, the 2016 election was, in their words, a big hoax. But John Durham did not do any of those things. After a four-year-long investigation and two failed prosecutions, John Durham's final report amounted to little more than a few process criticisms about the FBI's investigation and one guilty plea with no jail time. Today's hearing was supposed to be a victory lap for Republicans, but instead it ended up being an opportunity for Democrats to highlight the findings of the very investigation that John Durham was supposed to discredit. Here was Congressman Adam Schiff in one of those exchanges. The Russians released stolen emails Mm -hmm. through cutouts, did they not? There were emails. It's a very simple question. Did they release information, stolen information through cutouts, yes or no? Yeah, I'm not sure. You really don't know the answer to that? The answer is yes, they did. Through DC leagues. Well, in your mind, it's yes. Well, Mueller's answer was yes. More important than mine, Mueller's answer was yes. Now, that information, of course, was helpful to the Trump campaign, wasn't it? I I don't think there's any question, but that the Russians intruded into... Um, well, I just want to act get... into the systems. They released information. And that was helpful to the Trump campaign, right? And the, and the conclusion in the ICA and in the uh, Mueller investigation was that the Russians intended to assist. Can you answer Trump. my question, Mr. Durham? That was helpful to the Trump campaign, right? Yeah, that's. And, and Trump made are. use of that, as I said, didn't he, by touting those stolen documents on the campaign trail over 100 times? I, I, I said, I don't really read the newspapers or listen to the news. I don't well, really, find you were, that you were, reliable, you totally, so I don't know that. Mr. Durham, were you totally oblivious to Donald Trump's use of the stolen emails on the campaign trail more than 100 times? Did I'm that escape that. your attention? I am not aware of that. Now, it's moments like that that have made Congressman Adam Schiff a target of retribution uh, by Republicans in the House of Representatives. Earlier this year, Republicans voted along party lines to strip Congressman Schiff from his position on the House Intelligence Committee. But apparently that wasn't enough because today House Republicans once again used their control of that chamber to hold another vote on rebuking Adam Schiff. Earlier this evening, House Republicans voted along party lines to censure Congressman Schiff, which is a move 
typically reserved for members who have committed some serious ethical violation. Democrats chanted shame as Speaker McCarthy officially gaveled in the vote. Here was Congressman Schiff on the House floor moments before that vote took place. Today, I wear this partisan vote as a badge of honor, knowing that I have lived my oath, knowing that I have done my duty to hold a dangerous and out-of-control president accountable. Joining us now is the Congressman Adam Schiff. He's a Democrat of California. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. Thank you for uh, being with us tonight on your first night as a censured representative, uh, a member of Congress. Uh, what do you think this vote censuring you got them? Well, it got them the continuing gratitude for at least another day of Donald Trump. Uh, this is what this was about, uh, of showing their subservience to him, doing his bidding. And more than that, for some of them, and one out of 10 of the Republicans last week voted against a resolution of censure. This week, they voted for it because Donald Trump said if they didn't, he would make sure they had primary challenges. Uh, so this is the continuing devotion to this most unethical of former presidents. Uh, this is what this is about. It's also, you know, frankly, a badge of honor because they're going after me because they think I'm effective. At the end of the day, if they don't think you're effective, they leave you alone. But they want to try to make examples out of people who stand up to their lack of ethics, who stand up to their corrupt leader. Uh, they think I've done a good job, maybe too good a job of that. And so they're going after me again. What was it something specific? Because there are a whole lot of your colleagues who uh, who've done similar things. What what was specifically about you? And I guess my question is, what stops them from doing this to other members? Well, no, nothing stops them from doing it to other members uh, in terms of why was it particular to me? Uh, I led the investigation of Donald Trump's misconduct vis-a-vis -vis Russia, his misconduct vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. I led the first impeachment trial to the first bipartisan vote to convict a, a U.S. president in history. Uh, and then I served on the January 6th committee, uh, and that put me at the top of Trump's enemy list. Uh, and so this is them doing their bidding, going after someone they think has been effective. But, uh, but it's also their effort to try to silence and intimidate others. It's not going to work on me, but it may chill others from being willing to be out front uh, in defending our democracy. Uh, and in that respect, it's really dangerous to the institution. I want to uh, play a little of what uh, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said uh, about this today. Today, we're on the floor of the House where the other side has turned this, this chamber where slavery was abolished, where Medicare and Social Security and everything were instituted. They've turned it into a puppet show, a puppet show. And you know what? The puppeteer, Donald Trump, is shining a light on the strings. You look miserable. What's your sense, uh, Congressman, about about what happens next? Because there have been Republicans who were censured in the last Congress. Is this their way of sort of evening the playing field and, 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 and diminishing the effect of those censures? Uh, well, I think it's their way of saying, if you use a process for a good and legitimate reason, we will use it for an illegitimate reason. That's who they are. Uh, McCarthy has no control over the House. Uh, he looked more like he was being censured today than I did. Uh, and, you know, he's turned over 
the House of Representatives to the crazies. Uh, you know, the speakers today on their side of the aisle were Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert uh, and Luna, basically the, the extreme of the extreme MAGA fringe. Uh, but that's who's running the House. You know, they have an impeachment resolution against Joe Biden next. There's a censure, re- censure resolution they've introduced against Benny Thompson. Uh, they are determined to just drag that House chamber down. Uh, and it's it's a terrible disservice, as the speaker was pointing out, to the American people, because we have serious challenges to address, including homelessness, an opioid uh, epidemic uh, and uh, students mired in debt. And of course, they're doing nothing about these things. Uh, What they are doing is using now two weeks of the House time to go after Donald Trump's enemies. Congressman, good to see you again tonight. Thanks for joining us, Congressman Adam Schiff. All right, when we come back, what is fishy about this photo? According to some explosive new investigative reporting, an awful lot. We'll explain next. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. You just know a story is going to be good when a Supreme Court justice refuses to comment and instead races to get ahead of the story with their own defense before the news breaks, before the public has even seen the allegations. That's definitely the case here, where Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito raced to publish this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal entitled, ProPublica Misleads Its Readers. The story that got Justice Alito playing defense is this one. It's an incredible piece of investigative journalism showing that Justice Alito was treated to a major taste of the sweet life by a conservative billionaire who later had business before the court at least 10 times. Justice Alito didn't recuse himself from any of those cases. Okay, see the guy in the red in the middle of the picture here holding the gigantic fish. That is Justice Samuel Alito. The guy on the right in green... That's the conservative billionaire Paul Singer. In 2008, Mr. Singer flew Justice Alito to Alaska on a private jet for a multi-day luxury fishing trip. Now, if Justice Alito had chartered the plane himself, the cost would have exceeded $100,000 one way. Alito never disclosed that flight, and he didn't recuse in the cases that Singer was involved in before the court. Justice Alito's defense, which again, he published in the Wall Street Journal in an op-ed, rather than simply replying to ProPublica's request for comment, his defense was twofold. Number one, he said that the seat he occupied on the private jet would have gone 
unoccupied if he didn't take it. Now, Alito's excuse here is hilarious for a lot of reasons. Number one, being that you could kind of use that excuse for anything, right? I mean, this luxury hotel room would have been vacant. I was just using a billionaire's extra apartment while it sat empty. The argument is weak tea. But I want to look at Justice Alito's second argument and billionaire Paul Singer's response, because the second defense sounds really reasonable at first blush. At second blush, if there's such a thing, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. First, let's start with Singer's response. Singer says he didn't organize the trip and he didn't discuss it with his business. He didn't discuss his business interests while on the trip, which is possible. But pivotally, Singer also argued that the time at the time of the trip, neither Singer nor his companies had business before the court or could have anticipated that they would have business before the court in the future. ProPublica very clearly debunks that last bit. It turns out that the year before the fishing trip in 2007, there was a very specific case in which one of Mr. Singer's companies had asked the Supreme Court to intervene. And after the trip, that company and the opposing party kept asking again and again. Okay, so now this gets us to Alito's second argument. When that case that I was just talking about eventually did make it to the Supreme Court in 2014, Alito claims he was, quote, not aware and had no good reason to be aware that Mr. Singer had an interest, end quote, in the case. Now, this one's a little hard to believe once you look at the case in question. Take a look at this. This is the Libertad. It is the prize ship of the Argentinian Navy. In 2012, it made international headlines because it was impounded, effectively held hostage by the government of Ghana on behalf of a hedge fund. Paul Singer's hedge fund. It was an international incident. At one point, guns were drawn. The whole thing had to be resolved by the UN's International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. And Paul Singer wasn't some anonymous figure in all of this. That is the showdown between Paul Singer, the man who runs Elliott Associates, uh, and, uh, well, Argentina. Argentina described Paul Singer as a vulture capitalist. Argentina defaulted on its debt in 2001, and Singer's hedge fund reportedly bought up Argentinian bonds for pennies on the dollar, like a fire sale. In fact, Singer's fund purchased the majority of their Argentine bonds from June through November of 2008 for about 20 cents on the dollar, a year after the Supreme Court denied their first appeal request, and while Singer was fishing with Alito. That trip was July 2008. Then they acted basically like a junk debt buyer would in a small claims court, but on an international scale, demanding full payment. And Singer was very public about this, pulling stunts like the one with the Navy ship and at one point even trying to seize the Argentine president's plane, like their version of Air Force One. That was the incredibly public decade-long fight that brought Singer's hedge fund before the Supreme Court. The court ruled in Singer's favor seven to one with Alito in tow. And Singer's firm ended up walking away with a reported $2.4 billion, $2.4 billion dollars a return on what was reportedly a $117 million investment. Oh, we're not done, by the way. The month after the Supreme Court ruling, because of this hedge fund owned by the the hedge fund owned debt situation, the entire country of Argentina defaulted on its debt a second time. And news outlets across the country framed the whole thing as Argentina versus Paul Singer. 
So sure, maybe it's possible that Justice Alito didn't know Paul Singer was involved, but Alito really must not have done his research. Ultimately, that case was not decided by Alito alone. The ruling, as I said, was seven to one. And it's impossible to know if anything Singer did or said swayed Alito at all. But between the $100,000 flight, the lack of disclosure, the lack of recusal, the lame excuses, and the attempt to smear ProPublica in the Wall Street Journal, something here stinks. And it ate the fish. We're going to talk to one of the ProPublica reporters who broke this incredible story right after the break. Throughout his life, Sam Alito has shown himself to be a person of grace and humility, of composure and decency, and of fairness and civility. Samuel Alito is a model Supreme Court justice. Please join me in welcoming him this evening. Nice friendly introduction. The man introducing Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito at this 2010 event. His name is Paul Singer. He's a hedge fund billionaire, a Republican mega donor, and the figure behind an astonishing new investigation published by ProPublica offering never revealed details of a luxury fishing trip that Justice Alito made to Alaska in 2008 aboard Mr. Singer's private jet, a trip Justice Alito didn't disclose. Now, around the time Mr. Singer flew Justice Alito to Alaska, he was trying to convince the Supreme Court, uh, Singer is, uh, to intervene in a $2 billion dispute that he had with the government of Argentina. But Alito didn't says he didn't do anything wrong by not disclosing the trip because he considered it to be personal hospitality and because he says he barely knew Mr. Singer. Quote, my recollection is that I've spoken to Mr. Singer on no more than a handful of occasions, all of which, with the exception of a small talk during a fishing trip during 15 years ago, consisted of brief and casual comments at events attended by large groups, end quote. Oh. Let's continue. On no occasion have we discussed the activities of his business and have never talked about any case or issue before the court, end quote. All right. Joining us now is the ProPublica reporter, Joshua Kaplan. He's part of the team that broke this illuminating story about Justice Alito last night. Josh, good to see you. Thank you for being with us. I just want to get down to the bottom of this because Alito is claiming he's got a very peripheral, tangential relationship with Singer. But there was stuff happening in 2006, uh, 2007 with Singer and the Argentinian government. And, and this 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 uh, was still going on when this fishing trip went on. How did Alito get onto this fishing trip? Yes, it's a really interesting question, because actually, well, one thing we learned is they hadn't met before uh, this billionaire and Justice Alito. So Singer, the billionaire, was invited on this trip by Leonard Leo. He's the longtime leader of the Federalist Society who helped handpick Trump's uh, lists of Supreme Court nominees. And uh, Singer was a major donor to Leo. He invited him on this trip. And then he asked if uh, Leo and Alito could fly on his private jet. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot we still don't know about the genesis of this trip, but all roads so far point to Leo. I mean, he's the only connection between these various prominent guests on the trip. It was a trip with uh, the justice that Leo had just played a key role in confirming to the Supreme Court, uh, a judge that Leo had clerked for, 
and then two major donors to Leo's network of political groups. So Leo has responded to your article, Leonard Leo. He had said, quote, I would never presume to tell the justices what to do and no objective and well-informed observer of the judiciary honestly could believe that they decide cases in order to cull favor with friends or in return for a free plane seat or a fishing trip. Leonard Leo's incredulous that someone might take something in response for something else. Now, you work for an organization and I work for an organization that has rules about what you can take for people from people. Right. The rule doesn't say I can't take a gift because I might fall under their influence. The rule says you can't take the gift so that the public can understand that I don't take gifts from people and you don't take gifts from people. It's not a whether or not you did something. It's a these guys just don't seem to understand rules. Yeah, I mean, exactly. There's uh, there's no evidence that this was a quid pro quo, uh, that there was a specific ruling in exchange for a specific gift. But I think what this underscores here is that, you know, the rules you're talking about that you and I have as journalists are also rules that are very strictly in place in just about every other part of the federal government. Correct. In terms of uh, what gifts you can take from outside parties, uh, what you have to disclose and all manner of other things. I mean, these are the trips that we're talking about here would be unheard of for virtually ever every other employee of the federal government. So interesting way this happened. You guys write this article. Mm-hmm. You ask for response from Alito. He then publishes an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which is odd. Um, but then this evening, the Wall Street Journal published an editorial as well, in which it says ProPublica's focus on recusal is the latest angle in the progressive campaign to cripple the court's new majority. By imposing even tenuous associations as grounds for recusal, litigants can exclude certain justices from hearing a case. With a court of only nine justices, this could determine the outcome. Call it court thinning rather than court packing, but the effect would be similar. So they are ascribing... uh, motive to the fact that you wrote this article. That's something that suggests that you're trying to somehow hobble the Supreme Court. You're writing an article, which is what you at ProPublica do. You research things, you uncover things, you report things, and you write the article. Uh, Yes. Um, So, I mean, to be clear, we are covering the Supreme Court because uh, last year, my my colleague Justin and I uh, we're thinking about how it seems like the judiciary just doesn't get covered like other branches of government. There is vigorous coverage of Congress people of both parties, of presidents, of cabinet officials. And there's relative like there's not a history of investigative coverage of the Supreme Court or the lower courts, for that matter. And, uh, you know, turns out uh, as we started digging that there's a lot to find there, I think, because uh the rules that exist in these other branches just aren't in place uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court. Which, by the way, most of us didn't know and we have now learned. Right. But you are bearing witness and you're trying to hold to account. But the Wall Street Journal tonight says that you've got some effort to undermine the court. Yeah. Would yeah. I, would it, is it be fair to say, I'm going to ask you that. Do you have some effort to undermine there's the Supreme Court? There's absolutely no effort to undermine the court. And I feel like there's a there's a valence in the editorial, of course, that this is a partisan motivation as well, uh, which... I can say that we are actively reporting on all the justices and we are you know, eager to learn as much as we can about um, ethics on the Supreme Court with you know, no regards to partisanship. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Josh Kaplan, thanks for making the time tonight. All right, we're going to be right back. All right, that does it for us tonight. We're going to see you again tomorrow.